Um, make sure that you signed in and got a handout. Looks like everybody did. And uh, so we should be all set to go. Um, today, we are going to look at Luke chapter 8, uh, verses 40 through 56. And this is uh, the woman with Jairus' daughter and the woman who touched Jesus' garment. And it is, it is quite a text. Uh, it is quite an account. And this is another one of those great examples of how the Greek New Testament is just so incredibly rich and pulls out, you pull out things out of the the original languages that sometimes get gets lost in the translation. And this is one of those texts. So, when we think about, when we think about uh, trials and life and challenges that, uh, that sometimes come our way in life, we, we often find ourselves caught in, in between our needs and the, the times in which we pray and uh, the times in which those prayers are answered. Um, thinking about the holy life, um, quiet contemplation is, is one of the most valuable things. And one, one thing that I struggled with as a young Christian, and, and I've seen through my own pastoral care of, of folks, that people struggle to apply or understand how to apply these scriptural texts to their own lives. It's, it's very difficult. You know, we, we tend to be very binary in, in our approach to things. And so, like you read this account of Jairus's daughter and the woman with the flow of blood, and you may say, well, I don't, I don't have any illness, and so I'm not really sure what to do how this applies to me. Um, but part of looking at a text like an icon is to you know, figure out who you are in the text and think about your own needs. So what is your heart yearning for? Um, what is the pain that you, that you experience and feel uh, in the you know in your life, and how is it that this text is a living text? So you know, there's two things, right? So there's the historical account of Jesus and Jairus's daughter and the woman with the flow of blood, right? That's the historical account. But then, why is it that Luke? writes it down for us to always read and remember and reflect upon? Well, one answer would be we see that Jesus is the Lord who can heal a woman and raise a, a dead girl. Um, but, and so that speaks of resurrection and, and that which is to come, right? But then also... In our own meditation, what, what does this text teach us 
about our lives today because we read them in church and it has every bit of meaning for us. So what can we pull out of it? So what do you see in the text? Well, on a, 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 more, general or a, a more general perspective, we do have needs, all of us, it may not be health, it may not be, uh, you know, having an issue with bleeding, but it might be other things that are deeper. It could be relationships with other people. It could be the anxiety that we have with the circumstances around us right now in our lives or what's going on in the world. And, you know, just kind of like this, maybe you have chronic worry or Uh, sadness or um, maybe even a little bit of anger. Um, How can Jesus heal us of these things? And it's hard for Christians because there's a lot in the waiting. And we tend to be people of action, right? We have a problem and we want it fixed. And we'll pray about it. But so often... God doesn't readily answer our prayer or we don't see him answer our prayer. Uh, We don't see the result or maybe we don't see the result that we want. Um, what, What is the Christian life like? What does it look like in the waiting? And I, the older I get, and the more I journey as a pastor and as a Christian, I think that a holy life is seen in the quiet moments. It's seen while we wait. And this text really shows, shows that example. So I think, about, for, I think about the Lord's Prayer. And I think about... The petitions lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I've come to think that the Christian life is caught right in in between those two petitions. Lead us not into temptation, right? So that's the prayer where we're saying, Lord, help. And then that next petition, but deliver us from evil, is where God answers. So we, we pray, we ask, and then he delivers. And the Christian life is in the quiet moments in between those two petitions as we wait. And, you know, like Tom Petty used to sing, the waiting is the hardest part. <laughs> uh, so let's take a look at the text and then we'll, we'll kind of muse our way through it. Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 40. So it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. There's waiting there again. And behold, there came a man named Jairus. And he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, 
and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. Now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood stopped. All right, now let's just pause there for a second. Now, Jairus in Hebrew means God enlightens, okay? Um, And so you have in the name uh, an indication that, that God brings goodness and love into Jairus's life. You know, his name defines his encounter with Jesus and what happens, and the fact that he's named suggests that he's remembered. But put yourself in Jairus's shoes, okay? You have a loved one who is very sick, but not dead yet, but it's coming. So, you know, I always think about, like, Chicago traffic, right? What, does Chicago traffic make anybody else crazy? (laughs) And, you know, it's always, the traffic is always the worst when you are what? In a hurry. In a hurry. That's exactly right. So this is kind of like Chicago traffic, only first century situation, right? Because Jairus, he takes a leap and he's like, I've heard of Jesus. Jesus can heal people. I'm going to go and see if he can heal my daughter. He goes to Jesus and says, come please help my daughter. And Jesus is like, I'm there, let's go. And so now your heart is pounding. You have a little bit of hope though, right? Because you're like, this guy, I know he's healed people. I'm really nervous, but he's, he's willing to come, and so let's go. And so you put your foot on the gas, right? And then what happens? All these selfish people start surrounding Jesus. And that's exactly how you'd feel, right? You're in a hurry. you got to get there before your daughter dies. And now you have all these gawkers. Wouldn't that make you crazy? That would make me crazy. And so they're curious. And, you know, this is life. I mean, this, this is the test of being a Christian in a chaotic world. Because... You need real help and you need an answer to your prayers. And then you have the world and all its weird nuances hanging around, getting in the way, slowing down, slowing you down, hindering progress, hindering blessing, hindering goodness. How do we live as a Christian in the midst of that? That's what tests your faith, isn't it? What tests your faith isn't these joyous days where everything goes smoothly. It's when every bump in the road happens. That's what tests your faith.
That's what makes us angry. That's what makes us lose hope. That's what makes us sad. And we get bound up within ourselves. So how do we live as a Christian while we watch Jesus pause? While we watch the world get in the way? And it switches. Now all of a sudden, here is... So Jairus leaves the scene. And now all of a sudden, it's this woman with a flow of blood. 12-year-old girl, Jairus' daughter's 12. She's had the issue of blood for 12 years. It's like a complete cycle. And the woman... It's a very interesting situation because... Jairus was an important person. He was a president of, of a synagogue. And it's his only begotten daughter... But then all of a sudden is this woman. Now, she spent her entire livelihood on physicians to heal her. So she, it's thought, and I would agree with this from just reading different commentators on this text, it's thought that she, was pro- she started out probably quite wealthy. She had the means to see doctors and try to get them to help her. And she spent everything. And she ends up in poverty. So just put Jairus on the, on the side there for a minute, because that's what Jesus did. And so now we're looking at the woman. Think about her life. Twelve years with a flow of a bleeding problem, chronic bleeding problem. You can just imagine what kind of physical condition she would be in. She probably was very pale and anemic, right? Uh, It probably led to other health issues. So things start building upon themselves, right? Problem upon a problem. And then the, the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament had some things to say about this. So, like, for example, if you look at the handout, uh, down near the bottom of the page, there are a couple of verses. So, where it says verse 43 in red, the flow of blood is discussed in the book of, books of Moses. So, Leviticus fifteen nineteen, When a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, She shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. But then look at Leviticus 15.25. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness, as in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Twelve years. That's like being a leper. It is just like being a leper. And if you jump ahead to the third page at the very top in bold print, 
It says Leviticus 12.4. She shall then continue in the blood of her purification 33 days. She shall not touch any hallowed thing. Nor, now here's the kicker. Nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are fulfilled. So, put all this into perspective then. She, because of her condition, could not be around people. So, isolation. Remember I've said, the devil works in isolation. And then, so... At least if we feel alone or we are troubled and we feel like we have no one that could help us, which that in and of itself is a travesty because we have the church. But if a person feels that way, at least you would conclude, well, I could still go to church or I could still go to God, right? At least God will hear me. But think about the Old Testament. The Jewish people, they understood that if there was no temple, then God and people could not come together. They needed to have the temple, or, and then later synagogues. And there, God would meet people, and God would bless the people. So this woman, by virtue of her uncleanness, Not only could she not be around other people, but she could not go into the presence of the Lord either. She was kept away from the word of God and the blessings of the Lord. So what is happening with this woman is every part of her life, she has been isolated and removed from physical. So think about this, physical well-being. If you feel healthy, you're like, you could be poor and have everything else against you, but say, at least I've got my health. Yeah, I remember my grandma always saying that, well, at least I got my health, you know. But so you don't have your health. You've lost all of your monetary means. You're basically a beggar. Now no one will go around you. Everybody's treating you like a leper, Right. And you can't even go into the sanctuary of the Lord to receive blessing. This is the very picture of death. death. Yeah, that's exactly right. And this is the woman's state of life. So let's read on. So let's reread verse 42 and 43. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. Now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any came from behind and touched the border of his garment and immediately her flow of blood stopped. Now remember that passage on page three, she wasn't supposed to touch anything that was hallowed or holy. So, so she comes and she touches Jesus. Yeah, the son of God. Now, by, by law, she's not even supposed to be in that town. So she comes undercover. 
And she's hoping just, you know, she's heard about Jesus. She's heard things just like Jairus. She's heard that he can heal people, that he can do great things. She has put her trust in the world. So, so you see, can you kind of get the spiritual dimension here? There's this deeper thing, okay? So maybe you don't have a, a, a flow of blood or an illness, but there's this sense of, okay, she's, she put her trust in the world and hoped for the best, but the world disappointed. And we can say the same thing, but maybe with different things, you know? I've always felt good about the world. I always felt like the world was good, right? People say this. I mean, I thought that when I was young. The world is good, you know? Everything should be all right. If I just do the right things, everything should be good. But then when things go badly, time after time, and the world is not good, and it shows itself for what it is, you start to go, what is going on here? And so she grabs on to something. Now, it doesn't say it in the English. It, sa- it says, it, this is New King James Version. It says she touched the border of his garment. But in Greek, she grabs a hold of the kraspedu, which is a tassel. So there, he, has a couple, he has a few tassels hanging off of his robe. And why the tassel? You know, this is sort of the big question. Like, why, does, why doesn't she just go up and grab him by the shoulders or just go up and touch the back of his, you know, his back and just touch his back and say, all I have to do is touch this son of God and I'll be, maybe I'll be healed. But no, she actually grabs the tassel so now go in your Bibles to num- go to Numbers 15, verse 38. And what does it say? Start at verse 37. So Numbers 15, verse 37. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. And you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them and that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined. And that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So Jesus has these tassels. And think about it. It has a cord of blue, a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. So they're beautiful. They're colorful. And they're hanging, four of them, I think. Is that right? Well, on, I guess on the corners, right? So put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. And those tassels symbolize something. 
the Ten Commandments. Now, think just a little deeper about this. Because when we think about the Ten Commandments from Luther's Catechism, we think, we think in kind of, a, again, a binary way, like, you know, remember, you remember back to Catechism and uh, what Luther said is the chief use of the, of the Ten Commandments. Uh, they act as a mirror, remember that, which, you know, shows us our sin. And we always think, oh, the commandments are hard. Yeah, I know, I, do. Well, I know, but let's keep that, you know, keep it a little distant. But she sees the tassel and she thinks, she thinks about the commandments. So if you think about this just a little deeper, she sees the tassel and she sees the word of God. God's revelation. And so what, what is happening with her is she sees <clears throat> that here is the Son of God and he is the word made flesh. And she sees that tassel and she's thinking the world's mechanisms for goodness and wholeness and healing have failed me. And I've forsaken the one thing needful, which is the word of God. And there is this tassel that symbolizes the word of God. And they hang from the word made flesh himself. And so if I grab on to the word of God, if I grab on to the son of God himself, I maybe will be healed. This is the one thing that I have not been able to grab a hold of in this whole illness. But here he is, and maybe he will receive me. Don't the Jewish men still have a tassel on their... They still, yeah, I think the... Uh, yeah, they still have them. And this leads then to Zechariah 8, verse 23. So if you would turn to that, that's near the end of the Old Testament... Um, so it's Zechariah chapter 8, and it's verse 23. So Zechariah eight twenty-three, And it reads, Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Now, that says sleeve, but if you look at the original languages, so like the Greek, New Te or the Greek Old Testament is the Septuagint, and the Septuagint has the same Greek word, kraspedu, so tassel. So what that is saying here is, in those days, ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the tassel of a Jewish man. So grabbing a hold of the word of God. Saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So they symbolize, so you think about the commandments, right? But think, think a little deeper on this. It's, it represents the word of God because remember, what was the first written scripture? but the Ten Commandments. That was the first written scripture. 
And who wrote it? Yeah, with the finger of God, he wrote it. So, you know, I'm like the grander scheme of, of a, a study on the scriptures is that um, why does Moses write scripture down? Well, because that's what God did. God wrote the first scripture and gave it to the people forever. And so Moses gets the word of God from God and he writes it. And I mean, it's amazing too, because if you study a little deeper into the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments went in the Ark, right? But then where did the, where did the Torah go, the books of Moses? They had a little receptacle affixed on the outside of the Ark, and the Torah went in there. And then the Ark always led the people, right? And if the Ark stopped, the people stopped. And then if the ark went, the people followed. And so this concept of the tassel, you know, it's the commands of the Lord, it's the commandments of the Lord, but it's this grander scheme of this is what it is to be a disciple and a catechumen, is that we turn and we grab a hold of the word of God and we let the word of God lead us. And this is the mark of the catechumenate. This is the mark of the church's life. So in a way, this text is very similar to like the, the man that was healed, that was possessed with demons in the, in the cemetery. And he ends up sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and he's learning from Jesus. You know, this is very similar that the woman with the flow of blood, she knows some things from the Jewish teachings in the background, but now it goes to a different level because the old, the old covenant has passed and now Jesus ushers in the new. And so the picture is the old covenant fails her in a sense and only Jesus can actually bring her to life. So she sees the tassel, she grabs it, she grabs a hold of the Son of God, and now she follows Jesus. Jesus is the ark incarnate. He is the Word of God incarnate. He is the life giver. She follows. She's made whole. She's made new. She's alive. And so this text teaches then for the rest of time that as we, as we muse upon this from Luke's gospel, we are seeing the life of the catechumenate. We are seeing the life of the church. We are seeing ourselves in this woman. The world fails we have our sins, we have our failures, we have our own human frailty, and we turn and we grab a hold of Jesus, the Word made flesh, and He makes us new. So let's, let's continue on.
So Jesus said in verse 45, so we're back to Luke 8, 45, who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you, and you say, who touched me? But Jesus said, somebody touched me, for I perceived power going out from me. And let me just real quick look at verse 46. Power. This is like, so the word power in Greek is the word we get for dynamite. It's dynamis. Isn't that cool? Now, what's interesting about this is in the book of Acts, dynamis, dynamite, is used for the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, like if you ever hear, like, um, Peter preaches, bless you, Peter preaches with great power and might, right? So this is, you know, so the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of the gospel is this same dynamis, this same dynamite, this, and that's, and you see it because like in the book of Acts, you'll, you'll see like Peter in, in Acts chapter two, he'll preach and then all the people are cut to the heart. What should we do? What do we need to do to be saved? Repent and believe and be baptized, every one of you, including your children. And then it ends, and this, this happens in several places in the book of Acts where they'll be preaching and conversion, and it'll say, all these people have been added to the Lord that day. And so what it is in the book of Acts is you have language of dynamis, power, might, and then you'll see the result. And so the church grows. So this is a glimpse with, you know, he says, I saw power, I felt power come out of me. What this is, is it's, it's a precursor to after Christ's death and resurrection and ascension and then the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, now we see it in the church all the time. Our conversions, our baptisms. So, so see, the, the whole idea of this text is the woman is a picture of you and me, a conversion, coming to faith, Jesus turning our lives around, giving us hope, and our hope is an eternal hope. So let's keep going, because I'm going to run out of time here. Verse 47, now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. Because remember that Leviticus passage on the top of page 3? Not supposed to touch any hallowed thing. And she touches the Son of God. And falling down before him, she declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, daughter, which is a statement, a term of endearment, daughter, your, now, this is, this, is, this is the Greek. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So, for you grammarians, saved you is in the perfect tense, which means it's complete. It's, it's, it's a done deal. 
but it's more than just healed. Like your your translations probably say she was healed. Made well, okay. All right, I could go with that, made well. But um, this is saved. And this, this word is used for the forgiveness of sins, eternal life. It, the Greek word is sozo. And so it's perfect tense and it's saved. And then he says, journey in peace. And so the idea is, now she makes her journey with Christ and she's, she walks in this, this spiritual peace. The world is still raging around her. The crowds are still clamoring and gawking. Now they're really amazed. But now she... Her life is different. And it's like the benediction, by the way. So, you know, so if you look at this text, think about the text in terms of our worship life in church. We come from outside, right? We come from outside, out in the world, and we come through and we walk past the font, which that's where this happened to us, right? In the font. And we draw near, and at the end, Jesus has a word of benediction. Go in peace, and there you have it. But then it switches. Everybody's forgotten about Jairus. (laughs) But then in verse 49, as he was speaking, uh, someone from the chief synagogue comes and says, your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher any longer. Now, again, remember the saved was in, the verb was perfect tense. So the word died is also perfect tense. It means it's completed action. It's done. It can't be undone. Now, the way the, re- the response is that don't trouble the teacher any longer because she's died. So there's this sense of finality with death. So they, they think, well, if she were alive, maybe Jesus could have helped her. But he can't even control death. No one can control death. No one can turn death around. That's what they think, right? And what is Jesus hearing? Jesus answers him. Do not fear only believe and now how does it read in English in verse 50 in Greek it says and she will be saved made well okay only believe and she will be made she'll be saved um, so the shall be saved is future passive. So it's, it's something that hasn't happened yet, um, but it's passive tense, which means it's done outside of her. I mean, the Greek, the Greek just kind of like blows my mind all the time. Like, for example, in James 4, verse 7, 
it's this. So this is this is a cold translation from the Greek, but it says James four seven. Uh, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But so submit to God sounds like something you have to do, right? Like, you know, law. The law is always like if you can point your finger at somebody and say, "Do this," right? It sounds like law. Submit to God sounds like me pointing my finger to you and saying, hey, submit to God. Come on now, submit to God. But what's interesting in the tense in the Greek for the word submit, it's, um, it's past tense, it's aorist tense, passive voice, but it's an imperative. So imperative is like with an exclamation mark, right? Okay, so you have that. But aorist is past tense, which means it's done. But, but passive tense means it's done to you. So when James set, writes in, in James 4, 7, submit to God, what he's really saying is submit to God. Oh, and by the way, you've already been submitted. It puts a completely different thread to the, the passage. So, you know, to submit to God, the way James says it is like, just sit in the, in the gospel peace and let, let the gospel peace just reign over you and it does its thing. You know, there's this habitus of how we, how we exist. And that actually has everything to do with our text today. Because she's entering the gospel soup and Christ is turning her life around in the midst of all the chaos of the world and she's finding a new way of existing as he heals her. And so, same thing with Jairus' daughter. She's dead. They think it's all over and he's like, hey, Let's keep going. So you can just imagine, right? Chicago traffic and, you know, all the gawkers looking around and watching all this stuff. And then your daughter dies. What are you going to do? How are you going to react? I mean, it you could get ugly, right? You've slowed him down. Now it's too late. It's all over. I mean, you could just feel the grief welling up, right? But then Jesus says, no, let's keep walking. And so they keep going. And then in verse 52, let's, well, let's see here. That's jumping too far ahead. So the woman saw that, oh, wait, verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, your daughter is dead, do not trouble the teacher. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him saying, do not be afraid, only believe and she will be saved. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, Do not weep, she is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. These were probably professional mourners that got paid to do it. Okay? So, you know, that was a big thing in that culture. It was a community kind of thing, but is it me, but to like have to pay 
people to mourn for your dead smacks of a little bit of insincerity to me, right? Like, where are your friends? Where are your family? You know, do you have to pay for mourners? And I know there's a lot going on with that whole thing, yes. Well, there's some things to be said about being around a dead body as unclean, so they paid people to go do that for them so they didn't... Have to get close? Maybe so. I'd never thought about that. But that's a possibility, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, right. But, well, you know what? You bring something into the picture that is very important because now the, you know, the dead body is unclean and if the people come, now they're unclean. And so it does create some other dynamics. Uh, I, I thought of that because there's no mention of when she touches him, she's like, has a flow of blood. They never mention how Jesus is now unclean and Jairus being the head of the synagogue. I, I would have thought he would have said, well, now you can't go to her until evening because now you're unclean until then. Exactly. But, I don't know. It all gets very complicated, doesn't it? Like, there's so much going on, like, Jairus has to be concluding it is all over. Like, I hadn't thought about the fact that now maybe Jairus thinks that Jesus is unclean, but now, if that's the case, all hope is lost, right? But Jesus then, so now here's the cool thing to me, is he lets Peter, James, and John, and the parents come in to witness this. And it's like the church. You get to see the, the secrets of, that, that the rest of the world doesn't see. And now watch this. And there is a lot to this because I know I'm out of time. I apologize about this. Um, but, you know, like Peter, for example, in his epistles... He uses a word for being initiated into the mysteries, the sacred mysteries of the church. And the word sacred uh, mysteries is secret. You get, in, you get an eye view into the secret, the secret and divine things of, of, of God. And so it's like these people, and Peter, James, and John, they get to see things that the others don't, right? Like the transfiguration, they go up in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? So they get to see some other things, and they watch this. Now, Jesus says she's not dead but sleeping, and this is language in the New Testament of you know, falling asleep in Jesus. So uh, the death of a Christian is to fall asleep in Jesus and await the resurrection. So that's the language that is used. She is not dead but sleeping, and then he takes her by the hand, verse 54, and he speaks to her and says, child, rise. Language of resurrection, but the word child is a word, it's in Greek, pais, paedagogus. It's the word that is used for uh, a person who undergoes Christian instruction. This word is very specific to instruction into the church's teachings. 
pedagogus instruction. So she is one being instructed into the way of life. And then her spirit returns to her. She rises up immediately and he commands that they give her something to eat. So it's a bodily. That's the way I've always taken it. Like, why does, you know, it's, you know, it's like, well, it's just to me like uh, Saul's, you know, Paul's conversion, where in the time between his blindness and receiving his sight and being baptized, he's blind and he fasts. But then he eats and is strengthened afterwards. So it's like the time of spiritual testing is over. Um, last week, Pastor Nelson also talked about that there's a new covenant, that there's like breaking of bread or eating. Ah, there you go. There you go. Yeah, feasting, right? Celebration, the time of, of, of spiritual, you know, testing and, you know, meditating is now over and now we... We feast. Yeah. Time for celebration. And then he commanded them to tell no one. (laughs) And that's a whole nother thing. Uh, but, um, But what a text. And so we find ourselves in it. We find ourselves similarly caught in the trials and chances of life, and yet our Lord comes and, and brings us to life and gives us a new hope. And at the bottom of the page three is a, a really nice, really nice collect from uh, Dmitri of Rostov that I thought went well with this. So let us pray and then uh, conclude with the benediction. Come, our light, and illumine our darkness. Come, our life, and revive us from death. Come, our physician, and heal our wounds. Come, flame of divine love, and burn up the thorns of our sins, kindling our heart with the flame of your love. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen.